You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Justice is Served, where we bring you the latest and trending legal news on a weekly basis here on Black Hollywood Live. My name is Sarah Azari. I'm a criminal defense attorney and one of your hosts here on Justice is Served. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Attorney Chelsea Galicia. Hey, Chelsea. Hello. And a very special guest, BJ Abron. Hi, BJ. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, BJ uh, actually just graduated from Southwestern Law School, which is our alma mater, uh, Go Southwestern, Um, and he clerked for uh, the L.A. County Public Defender's Office, as well as the um, Business and Legal Affairs Department of BET. And what I found most uh, interesting about BJ's background, um, his legal background, is that recently upon completing a seminar called Race and the Law, something that wasn't offered at least when I was at Southwestern, so that tells you that the academic world is also sort of catching up with the times. Um, is that he um, authored a very interesting study um, supported by statistics, in fact, um, called Colorblind Laws, a Modern Conduit to Discrimination. And I assume that by that you're talking about um, discrimination in law enforcement, right? Well, I mean, the discrimination kind of, it's exuberated outside of just law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But law enforcement happens to be the focus Obviously, because of all the stuff that's going on today in right. today's time. So, and what? Uh, well, actually, that's Chelsea and I. For weeks, have been um, with our other co-host as well. Have been talking about you know it's either Freddie Gray or it's Ferguson or it's Eric Garner. You know, there's always um, someone who is an unarmed black, uh, you know, African American man with a white cop somewhere across the nation. So this has been, and this is why I thought you had such an interesting perspective to offer here on the show um, for our viewers because, you know, we've just constantly been talking about these incidents left and right. Um, So what personal event triggered you to look into this? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, it came out uh, during my race in a seminar paper, Mm -hmm. uh, which was spearheaded by Professor Gupta. Um, uh, I grew up in Compton, California. So as far as I'm concerned, these uh, the images or the actual cases that we see today aren't something that just began today. You know, these have historically been taking place, and mm-hmm. I've seen it firsthand growing you up. You experienced so, it, didn't you? Definitely. Right. So I kind of lead into the paper with uh, one of my experiences of this, mm-hmm. uh, where this has t- taken place, mm-hmm. where um, I was pulled over by officers um, with two of my friends. None of us had prior records. None of us had any drugs or paraphernalia or was engaged in any incidents Mm -hmm. that would lead the police to believe that, you know, we were up to no good for that Mm -hmm. matter. Um, And they were on the opposite side of the street. So once we got pulled over, um, they essentially ticketed us for um, 
uh, for having a you know a bad tail light, which obviously you couldn't see from the front of the car. Um, and so through the process, we were told to get out the vehicle. Um, oh, you we mean they searched. were in front of you? So how they could they know the what your direction. tail light looks like? From, oh, from the God. other direction, right? Right. So, um, but, uh, you know, they made us get out the vehicle. They searched us. Um, the language that was used was the typical language as, you know, a, a, a slew of clerk curse words, take off your shoes. You know, mm-hmm. we got in the back of the vehicle. Um, and uh, essentially that's the kind of stuff that has historically taken place. Um, and that's on a, that's on a friendlier end of mm-hmm. these incidents, obviously, as we right. can see, uh, where a lot of people have been coming up, um, on the other end, you know, and, and been victim of heinous crimes. Well, and you um, talk at length about, um, well, I, w- I want to ask you what, uh, what you mean by colorblind law, but before I get there, you talk about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments of the Constitution and how um, somehow there's this belief, or myth, I should say, in your opinion, that um, the co- Constitution is colorblind, and just by the abolition of slavery, somehow we've addressed racism, and you're obviously in disagreement with that. So what is a colorblind law? Well, colorblind law is a concept that um, essentially derived during the Reconstruction period. Um, at that time, we heard a number of Supreme Court justices, presidents, pol- uh, politicians utilize this term. Um, and it essentially means that, um, and, and in fact, I'll quote uh, Justice uh Harlan, who stated essentially that the Constitution has no place for color, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for, on the basis for essentially eva- making evaluations on the basis of race. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and throughout that time frame, we've actually seen good things that took place throughout the colorblind laws, uh, excuse me, on the basis of colorblind laws. Mm-hmm. Um, one being uh, the board versus, uh, what is it, a Brown v. Board. Um, where, board of Education, yeah. Right, uh, segregation ended because of it. But in terms of making progression or, or having progression, um, it's a period where it starts and appears where it kind of ended um, to where we actually needed to transform from this basis of colorblind law, which essentially means, and to, to kind of answer your question, that um, when developing laws, when uh, the legis- legislature writes laws and when the Supreme Court justices or any judges, for that matter, renders a decision, mm-hmm. it's without the basis or, basis or consideration of any statistical data, um, any um, uh, looking into the unintended consequences that may derive mm-hmm. from whatever the decision or whatever that law that's being constructed will have on uh, not just African-Americans, but you know, on any right. minorities or even just anyone in general. Mm-hmm. So you talk specifically in the paper about the law that allows or the interpretation of the law that allows police officers to ask us to get out of the car whenever they feel like it. Now, if that had been applied in an, in a without this colorblind perspective how would that be different or how that how would that decision be different in my piece i utilize uh mims uh the mims case which is a case that took place in uh the supreme court supreme court heard in 1977 um and essentially they made a decision uh actually if i can give you a rundown on what what took place in the case Mm -hmm. very quickly Mm -hmm. um so in the mims case uh, a guy was pulled over for having a um uh, an expired driver's license. Um, he was asked to, you know, to exit the vehicle. He was, they, the police officer saw a bulge in one of his pockets. And at that time, they decided to conduct a pat, a pat down. Mm-hmm. They found actually a weapon on him and he was, uh, subsequently, you know, prosecuted mm-hmm. for it. Um, the question before the Supreme Court was not whether the conduct prior to 
the stop was um, a violation of his constitutional right, nor was the conduct after they recognized the bulge a violation of his Mm -hmm. constitutional right. But the actual request for him to exit the vehicle for a minuscule uh, traffic infraction, um, essentially, whether the question before the court was whether that was a violation of his constitutional right. And the Supreme Court held that um, it essentially was not. Um, They rationed or or reasoned that um, they actually had a balance between police safety and the liberty of the person at the point in which he's already stopped um, for uh, him to kind of just exit the vehicle at that point. But isn't that what every police officer, that's the first thing they claim in defense of using excessive force is that they felt like their safety was like in Ferguson. You know, that's what. To this day, that's what officers so then, rely on. So that's why this case was so interesting, because it seems like this is where it starts. This is a pivotal case, mm-hmm. because at that particular moment, um, the, the Supreme Court said, yes, police safety is such a huge issue. They used statistics that, um, in a dissenting opinion, completely annihilated the use of these statistics, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and it showed that police safety was not at risk. And in fact, it might increase the risk by asking someone to uh, exit the vehicle. Uh, and so this would, the way that this would look if co- the colorblind laws was not uh, perceived and applied in that mm-hmm. perspective is you might have had a circumstance where the Supreme Court justices must, they would have been forced to go ahead and look at uh, the statistics around police officers mm-hmm. and the areas, mm-hmm. the ramifications that may occur. Um, they might have looked, have to, have had to look at the unintended consequences that, that could uh, come from allowing the police this heightened discretion to make a decision as to whether someone should exit the vehicle or not. Do you think somebody could argue, well, we're asking them to speculate way too far into the future, and that's not fair to ask that of a Supreme Court justice who's just supposed to be interpreting the law? Well, I'm, I'm not, I mean, speculation is, is one thing, but when but there has been a history right, of this, right. but, mm-hmm. that, but that's actually where we have a problem because there has never been a mandate for police uh, departments to keep track of this information. Um, there's never been a mandate, you know, for anyone to keep track of this. When you say this information, what statistics? Statistical analysis on who who police choose to pick uh, pull over, mm-hmm. why why the reasons why they're pulling them over, and, and you and know, get asking them to get out of the car, right. the, the different treatment uh, on the same basic pulling over, black, white, men, right. women. None of those statistics are really kept. And this study that I actually did in, in uh, this paper came from 2008. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's just telling alone. I did this last, I wrote this piece last November. Mm-hmm. It was so hard to find any statistics, um, not not just in my favor, just statistics at all. In general, yeah. Right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, because I definitely don't, I wasn't just looking for statistics in my favor. I wanted to, you know, compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. Um, just recently, we got more, obviously, with all the incidents that's going on now. More people are engaging in studies and statistical analysis to generate some of this well, stuff. You actually um, relied on statistics from the ACLU, and I'm not sure geographically where these statistics came from, but what I found interesting was that in this community where these statistics were derived, um, that the higher frisk search and arrest rates had no correlation with minority criminality. And in other words, in fact, the blacks and Latinos were far less... um, uh, 
you know, we're not the ones with the contraband and the guns and the drugs. It was the the white boys, right? right? So I found that to be really interesting, and yet they're the ones that pulled over and frisked and searched more often. So um, on our show, we've had civil rights lawyers, um, pretty renowned ones, talk about how we are making progress. It's just very slow. It's baby steps, and they're sort of comparing, um, you know, the days back in the Rodney King riots to today, and they're saying, you know, we're we're slowly making progress. Um, it is, you know, it does get frustrating because it doesn't seem like we're making progress. Um, so, do you do you do you think there's any progress, or do you see this as just getting worse and worse? Well, um, there's definitely progress, but I mean, as I mentioned in this paper. Uh, progress is not tantamount to change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to be progressive in our approaches. We need to be creative in our search and, and, and us wanting to find ways to actually get to the change that we actually need. So, mm-hmm. yes, first and foremost, there has been pro- progress, right? Otherwise, I might not be sitting here today, to be honest, right? <laughs> so, of course, but is right. the progress enough? No way. Mm-hmm. Nowhere near it. And do you agree that some of this um, systemic, deep-rooted racism in, in law enforcement um, can be changed starting from the academy because, in fact, that's where they're taught. You know, black police officers are taught to um, react a specific way, even with other, you know, just their own race or mm-hmm. Latinos, mm-hmm. like minority on minority. It's just that the media, obviously, uh, what, what we end up seeing is the extremes, you know, the white officer with the right. minority. So, uh, I mean, do you think that retraining in the, in the academy could lead to some substantial change? Um, I mean, this process is so deeply rooted. And again, uh, just want to clarify that we're just talking about one aspect when we talk about right. the police department. We're not talking about the entire justice system. Right. Which, um, we're talking about the law enforcement. We're yeah. just talking about law enforcement. And so and, and, and re-engineering the processes that are involved with um, uh, the law enforcement and their dealings with the community on a daily basis. Yeah, we definitely need to completely revamp that process. Mm-hmm. Um, can it be changed? And in fact, the, 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 the comment that you mentioned a second ago is just so telling that um, once you get embedded into this culture of the police department, which my mom historically, since as soon as I was born, just called them a gang, right? Because that's really what they are. <laughs> right, they are, um, right. But when you get embedded into this culture, and it's so bad that you start even looking at your own people mm-hmm. a certain way as criminals, you know, that just is just a telling story at how bad and how deeply rooted this is. Mm-hmm. And um, and even today, I mean, obviously, there are so many cases right now where we kind of see up the ladder how uh, how deep this stuff goes, where it's not just the police on the ground. You know, it's the sergeants, you know, right. it, it just goes all the way up the ladder. Up the ladder it's, yeah. it's really embedded into the culture of the police department. Well, and, and you mentioned something in your uh, piece about people feeling uncomfortable. The fact that people are uncomfortable when the topic of race comes up to you is an indication that it, it is alive and well. It's that elephant in the middle of the room that people are trying to ignore. And that sort of brings us to the interesting uh, point that Chelsea brought up a couple days ago about President Obama recently responding to all that's going on in Baltimore, um, where he says that um, he's banning police departments from using specific military equipment, um, hardware and and riot shields specifically. And basically this ban prevents the U.S. military from giving local police departments these materials materials and I'm I'm kind of at a loss. Here's an African American, our first African American president. I don't want to get too political here on the show. It's a legal show, but um, and I voted for him. But they but carry over very intricately. They are very um, related, so it's almost impossible to right. not get yeah. into politics. But I mean, you know, and I voted stuff. for him. But it's like 
he what he said, you know, back when um, these are some of his responses, which sort of is is in in line with your comment that people, even our own president, who's African American, feels uncomfortable about making comments. You know, um, when Trayvon Martin was um, killed in Florida, um, he said, "If I had a son, it would look like Martin." You know, I mean. That's all you have to say. Right. And then, you know, the, the black Harvard professor in Cambridge who was um, um, unlawful, unlawfully arrested or detained, um, all he said was the police acted stupidly. Stupidly? <laughs> it's like, a, you know. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, he, he's tiptoeing around this yeah. as well. So I just think that, you know, and I think the African-American community is very disappointed in the president because there was a lot of hope for. Right. What do you think? And people were hoping he would do well i mean um i mean there's a slew of things he could have done um but i think one thing that i've noticed um as someone who is um african-american um and has come and come from the hood for that matter um is that once a lot of people believe in this process of slow progression like listen let's mm-hmm. not get violent let's go through the system the system works the system's telling look they use examples mm-hmm. you know they use martin luther king and they use right. all of these things that um uh that will lead one to maybe say hey just follow the system but what typically happens is you get a lot of people who get uh who maybe make it out and get in a position that i'm that i'm in now to have gone to law school mm-hmm. and they get caught up in a political process and mm-hmm. that's what you see when you when, when you mention obama what's going on or mm-hmm. uh you know other people in and in, in, in a similar um, position, they get caught up in this political process where they can't say certain things, they can't do certain things because mm-hmm. everything has a ramification. Right. And so, where's the change going to happen? How does the system allow for the change to happen if these people who you're relying on to say, hey, let's do this the right way and go through the system are now engaged in this political warfare and they can't do the things that they want to do? Right, right. Well, part mm-hmm. of it will. Maybe if there is a 28th uh, Amendment to the Constitution passed that takes money out of politics will make a difference so people can say what they really want to say rather than thinking about the the donors and what the donors are going to. Contributors, yeah. Yeah. Um, But the other part that I did want to mention is I think even though it seems a little disjointed from the reason, uh, talking about Ferguson as a reason for uh, pulling back the military equipment into these communities, there... The, none of these stories that we've covered have been have involved military equipment right, killing that's what I'm people. Saying. Yeah, but it's still a, a a culture of a huge, like a standing army almost mm-hmm. of our own police looking at the civilians mm-hmm. as people like that they're at war with, mm-hmm. and so as opposed that to serving and creates a further right. divide mm-hmm. and a further culture of enemies mm-hmm. among law enforcement right. and the community. So I don't think uh, President Obama addressed it very well, but I think the underlying goal was to um, release some of the tension by bringing us more on the same page rather than their, like, police-style military, right. military-style well, and police. And helping the people trust, you know, re- reinstating the trust that people need to have in their law enforcement, because after all, their job is to protect and to serve. Right. <laughs> all 
But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. we got a long I'm, way to go. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely do. And, I mean, honestly, when I was young, I think the first incident that I had in, in regards to, oh, well, it wasn't an incident with me, but on my street, um, I was probably in middle school at the time. Uh, someone got killed by the police, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess he was fleeing from, I'm not sure if he can, c- committed a crime or not, mm-hmm. but I just know he was fleeing. He was killed by the police. Mm-hmm. Uh, subsequently, uh, maybe weeks later uh, or a month later or so, m- maybe months later, uh, people were coming around the neighborhood and going door to door asking people if they knew anything. Uh, it wasn't the police, obviously. So right. it was obviously this person's either family or representatives and no one wanted to speak. And that's and it's it's a, it's telling because um, they are fearful. People right. are fearful of what the police will do mm-hmm. um, because when you grow up and you see the brutality, you know what they're going to do. And it doesn't matter if the guy looks like you or not. Right. You know, you're you're a victim if you run, right. if you stay. It doesn't matter what you do. You may become a victim to the police. Mm-hmm. And honestly, they have this. They have this. This. The reason why my mom used to tell me that they're gangs because they have <laughs> this process where. Um, just like a gang will do is, you know, you don't tell, you don't snitch. You right. Know, we right. talked about that. You don't that come out and this. talk yeah. talk about the, the bad things that may mm-hmm. shine, you know, to leave a negative impact. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if one of the things that will help move this um, progress along is for more non-African Americans to acknowledge what's going on. And I have to admit that personally, I've been slow to acknowledge it. One of my best friends is black and Mexican, and he would tell me these stories of being pulled over, and I would be like, uh, you were doing you know, mm-hmm. something. Even his own mother didn't believe him for mm-hmm. years until she witnessed something. So I think the more that we educate the entire country about these very real incidents and that we come to see because that's nothing at all like my uh, interactions with the police at all. And so once we start to really believe these people because now we can see it on video, then something might be done. And so I Mm -hmm. think what we can all do is have conversations about it with with everyone, black, non-black, so that we're all informed about what's going on. And from that, people will be inspired to move and make a difference. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely awareness that we, we have to admit. But anyway, let's, um, uh, BJ, stay with us because we definitely would love your input on some of the stories we're about to cover. I'm going to turn it over to Chelsea for On the Docket. Thank you. All right. So the jury has decided that death is the appropriate punishment for Zokar Tsarnaev, who, for his role in the 2013 Boston bombing. Um, he and his brother planned and carried out an attack that injured about 200 over 250 people, left 16 people without limbs and uh, cost the lives of three people, uh, plus one more who died the next day uh, from uh, a separate shooting involving the brothers. So originally, there were 17 counts that Tsarnaev faced the death penalty for, and in the end, the jury found that six of them warranted the death penalty, and those were for his specific acts of involvement. So the bomb that he carried and placed behind an eight-year-old um, boy, Richard Martin Richard, um, who died, and his younger sister, whose leg was torn off. And uh, this same bomb also caused the death of 23-year-old Ling Zhu Li, who was uh, a graduate student from China. 
but he got only the death, I'm sorry, the uh, life sentence for the deaths of the other two people, uh, including Crystal Campbell, who died as a result of his brother's bomb. And then the MIT officer who was killed the next day, they still don't even know who pulled the trigger um, leading to his death. And so that's why he was only given the death penalty there. Um, and so the, the jury obviously spent a lot of time looking at the the heinousness of these of these crimes and then had to weigh that against the mitigating factors that were presented by the defense attorneys who tried to paint him out as just a young kid who was looking up to his older brother who talked him into this whole thing but uh only three jurors found it um true that the older brother led him to commit these crimes, and only two jurors found that the dysfunction in his family had anything to do with him becoming a terrorist bomber. Uh, just one juror found that his mother's embrace of a radical Islamic left um, this young boy without the proper guidance that he needed. So then there's the issue of remorse, which there was very little of. Uh, even a nun who spoke with him uh who tr- who was trying her her best to testify that that he had expressed some remorse could only say that she felt he probably was sorry although he never said the words I'm sorry he did say that no person should have to suffer the way that these people suffered but never really took responsibility for I caused that suffering so uh, in all it wasn't that difficult for this jury to come back with this uh, capital punishment and now we're wondering. Will he actually be executed against a culture of of the United States and the state of Massachusetts that isn't really a fan of the death penalty? There is no death penalty in Massachusetts. Right. But this case was tried federally. Right. And so that's why the death penalty was on the table. And not only that, but the jurors who were selected had to be open Mm -hmm. to the death penalty in order to even be selected on the jury. Right. But now we're seeing that the the tide um, is turning. The support of the American people used to be somewhat like 80% for the uh, death penalty, and now it's close to 50%. So do you think that in light of the country's feelings about it. Even the victims' families are, are coming out against some of them against the death penalty. That even though he's been, uh, the jury has has said that he should be put to death, and the judge is bound by that. Although mm-hmm. he, he won't be formally sentenced until next month, mm-hmm. but will he actually be executed? Well, I, I, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But back to what you were addressing with respect to um, how the jury even got to this this point of of coming up with the with the death penalty. Um, Zarnev, uh, within 20 minutes of the bombings, uh, was buying milk. At a convenience store. Hopefully, and uh, yeah, and he was, um, you know, and he was tweeting that there ain't no love in the city. Uh, I'm just a relaxed kind of guy, a laid back kind of guy, and and you know, in the courtroom, he just seemed so bored and detached. He wasn't even following his own fate in the in the courtroom. So he was probably one of the most unsympathetic. Um, Clients, I should say, in a, in a courtroom, um, which which has a tremendous impact on jurors. They're sitting there for hours looking at you, um, even when you're not going to say a word because your lawyer is not letting you say a word. And um, and that's that's what happened here. And, and not only that, there was a photo of him in his jail cell flipping off the camera. Um, and uh, you know, so this shy boy with a chaotic life, they didn't buy it. I mean, it just fell flat completely. Um, 
And, you know, with respect to the death penalty and whether he's going to get it, I mean, they're obviously appealing it. In Massachusetts, you you automatically appeal the death penalty. And um, I have a serious issue with the death penalty. Um, we consider consider ourselves as Americans to be, you know, leader in human rights. And we're yet just one out of nine countries to have the death penalty. Um, and, you know, it. yes, this is a heinous crime. Yes, it's terrorism. Yes, people lost their lives. But you know what? In many ways, this is not proper punishment for a fanatic Muslim guy, because in fact, by giving him the death penalty, we're just uh, helping him, him, walking him to martyrdom. You know, that's what we're doing. I mean, he he has made statements about how jealous he is of his brother and how he died on the line um, in the police standoff, um, uh, you know, and, and that he wishes that he could be. And that's what we're doing. And so what are we really doing here? And just there's there's also a logistic issue um, with the death penalty, with lethal injections, I should say, in the federal system. There's a shortage of the drug. So right. states, the manufacturers don't even want to get involved with Yeah, this there's anymore. a shortage of the drug, and it's under review by the Supreme Court. So the Board of Prisons, which is the federal correctional department, um, has a moratorium on it where, you know, okay, yeah, you're on death row, but we don't, we're, we're not really sure what we're going to do with you until this is settled by the Supreme Court. So there's those practical issues as well. And I, I you know, I think it's going to be at least 18 years before this guy ever gets into the chambers if the, if the sentence is not reversed, because often... Um, the death penalty is set aside uh, on appeal, um, and sometimes people commit suicide while they're in custody. Um, they Somehow they just die naturally. I mean, there's things that can happen that he may never make it there. And I just think that, um, you know, the aftermath of this, in this case, is going to cause a lot of havoc. I think there's going to be a lot of chaos. Over. That's what the families... Yeah, exactly. That's that's the point that I was going to go to is the the 18 years. That means that this case is still open for 18 years. That right. means the family have not had a chance to grieve for 18 years. Right. I mean, these children, uh, the brothers, the sisters, the right. parents of these victims uh, right. will have to go to appeal after appeal after right. appeal for 18 years of their lives. And I think that when we look at the death penalty, and I'm not a proponent of the death penalty, um, that uh, that we have to look outside of the actual person who committed the crime and see what's happening or what are the ramifications and what, you know, what what will take place in the lives of those victims and their families, you know, Mm -hmm. because I think we're just so focused on getting punishment, which is contradictory for, like you said, someone who, uh, a country that prides themselves for, you know, human rights. And the federal, you know, U.S. Attorney's Office, the, the DOJ, is very interesting because they're just, you know, the, the last death penalty they got in a terrorist case was Timothy McVeigh in 1997 for the Oklahoma City bombings. Um, and so they're just like, woohoo, you know, we we finally got another one because they haven't been able to get it. Um, but when you look at it, I mean, what, what are you really doing? You're doing this. You have to look at whether that's even appropriate punishment for this particular person. And I don't think it is. Not to mention that, you know, one of the motions that the defense had brought that was denied was um, on grounds of the venue saying that, that Boston um, or this district court uh, in Boston was not the appropriate venue for this case because the people there were so close to this these heinous, you know, the, the violence and everything that th- this this jury could not be fair. And I, I think there's some truth to that. Mm-hmm. The motion was denied, but of course, on appeal, there could be a completely different result. Right. So anyway, I don't know. My personal feeling is that he he won't. What do you say in the end? I think 
I mean, I, I think you will. it'll be a process. It's yeah. a long, definitely. Probably by the time those 18 years, if, if your 18 year um, estimate is accurate, I think we will probably have um, maybe constitutionally remove the uh, the death penalty from being a uh, punishment option mm-hmm. in this country. I don't know. We'll see. All right. So moving on to somebody else who's facing more punishment, Aaron Hernandez. Will he add brutal witness intimidation to his criminal resume? So Alexander Bradley was once a good friend, some even say best friend of Aaron Hernandez, but apparently that didn't matter too much when um, Hernandez decided to shoot him in the face. Um, and left him to die in an industrial park. Sound familiar? Um, following uh, Bradley saying some comment about a homicide that Bradley witnessed uh, Hernandez perform in. I don't it was even... a drive-by shooting of the double, the, the two guys that bumped into him at the club. Right. right. So back in 2012 down in uh, Florida, no, this was in... No, it happened in Boston. It did happen in Boston. Mm-hmm. What happened in Florida is the shooting of Bradley. But in uh, Boston, uh, Hernandez was out at a club, and two guys apparently bumped into him, spilled a drink on him. That's a sign of disrespect that he doesn't tolerate. So later, when he found himself driving along the same road as these guys, he shot into their car and killed them, or at least those are the uh, charges that Hernandez is facing later on this year. Mm-hmm. And so this guy, Bradley, was in the car at the same time, and sometime later made some comments about those, witnessing those those murders. And Hernandez didn't like that, so shot him in the face, left him to die. He did not die. In fact, he became a witness for the prosecution <laughs> in the last case that Hernandez was just convicted in. So uh, this, this whole issue about... Oh, and in that murder trial, the fact that Hernandez was the guy that shot this guy in the face never came up to the jury. Mm-hmm. The jury never knew that. But so now this little, I mean, in comparison to he's already uh, going to spend the rest of his life without the possibility of parole uh, in, in prison. Why do they want to go after him for this witness intimidation when that only is like 10 years? What does that matter to the big picture? Well, you know, they're piling it on. Um, this guy, what I find interesting, I mean, you know, from a defense perspective, I gotta have a field day with this guy. He's his friend. He used to be a drug dealer. He used to be his marijuana pot dealer. They are still friends. Uh, don't well, deserve okay. to be shot in the face. No, definitely don't deserve to be shot in the face. But you know, and then why did he not make a police report? Um, the you know, snitch he, thing we talked many he, times. But what, what was he concerned about? Maybe he had a role in the drive-by shooting himself. I mean, you gotta also think out of the box and and see why what this guy's motive is. Because I mean, this is a serious. It's not just witness intimidation. It's it's attempted murder, right? I don't, <laughs> you know, he, but he never got charged with that, right? And he didn't he didn't um, report it to the police. It's now that the prosecution has decided to um, pursue this after he's filed a civil lawsuit. Um, and and you're right. You said it sounds familiar because even though in the Odin Lloyd trial, the the prosecution was precluded from bringing an evidence of motive, being that Odin Lloyd had information about that double homicide. Um, it is it's very similar to the Odin Lloyd, you know, circumstances around his murder because there's an industrial park, you know, the body's tossed over there after it's shot. I mean, these are all, you know, there's extreme some... similarities. Yeah, so, you Don't know. Don't go to an industrial park with Aaron Hernandez. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't get in this car. Um, anyway, 
But uh, I guess, you know, that the he, he's in Massachusetts, you get an automatic right to appeal a first degree murder conviction. And so that's where he's at with the main case. I think this is gravy. Uh, what happens here is uh, I mean, the prosecution is probably wanting to prove that this is this is this guy's M.O. Is that well, yeah, it's this pattern that whenever um uh, he feels that there's, and interestingly, both these witnesses, Odin and this guy, Bradley, are with respect to the same set of facts, you know, the right. same same conduct. So it, it just, it's a way to sort of bring it home, since they weren't able to before the, the jury, uh, in evidence that this is what this guy does, you know. So anyway, you more shall be revealed. On, on Mr. Hernandez? Well, I mean, I mean, like Sarah said, I think it, it shows his MO. You know, it's right in line with uh, what he's previously done, and I think it's it's telling about uh, the first, you know, the first conviction. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the fact. I mean, like you said, this is not just witness intimidation. Mm-hmm. This is attempted murder. You know, mm-hmm. and the fact that those circumstances were so similar, um, I'm not sure how much of a coincidence it is. Right. Probably not so much. <laughs> All right. So, um, moving on to a really fascinating Supreme Court case, um, they, a, a verdict has recently been allowed to stand where civil damages were found against the LAPD for intentionally concealing evidence that would have exonerated a man who sat in jail for 27 months awaiting trial. So this is about a story named, uh, a story about a man named Michael Walker who was just standing in line at a store when the store clerk thought he was the guy that had robbed them the week before. So Walker was arrested, and uh, apparently there had been a string of robberies in the area uh, in recent uh, at, at that time. And even when Walker was in jail, those still continued. And this robber had a very, uh, very uh, predictable trademark. And it was this note that he would hand over to the victim that threatened to start shooting. But the word start was always misspelled the same way. So even when Walker was in jail, these robberies continued with the guy who needed spell check. And the Mm -hmm. police knew this. And never disclosed it to Walker's attorneys. And even when Walker's attorneys asked for information about robberies in the area, the police said it was too burdensome to turn it over. So they decided not to. And so then eventually it did come out. But after the guy spent 27 months in jail for nothing. Uh, so then he sued civilly and um, he was awarded about $100,000, which isn't all that much. But because the, of his... Um, economic situation. The guy had um, inconsistent employment um, and that's why the damages weren't that high. But the point is is that the, uh, the the damages were allowed to stand against the LAPD. They were appealed. Uh, it, it remained there. And then the Supreme Court declined to hear it, which in essence is saying we're fine with the way things turned mm-hmm. out in the lower courts. Mm-hmm. So, Sarah, do you think that this should be a warning to police officers, or is there something so special about this case that uh, the police are not going to be very worried because this was just a really isolated incident? Well, I mean, 
I'm not sure if it's an isolated incident. It happens all the time. It happens in my cases. They think that they can selectively choose what evidence the defense gets and doesn't. I think it's about time that um, they, I mean, $106, $6,000 is not a lot of money, but the point of point of it is the ruling that they don't get to do that. And these guys, it was so deliberate, they duped the prosecutors. They basically said two days after Walker's arrest, Someone was out there robbing Burger King and another restaurant the same manner with the same note, and they said the opposite. They not only said, oh, no, we still... They said, you know, the robberies have completely stopped since Walker's been arrested. So, you know, they just went out of their way to keep this innocent man in jail for over two years. And, uh, and, you know, I, I just think that it sends a very loud message to law enforcement that... You need to turn it over. You need to be honest. You can't conceal evidence just because it doesn't get you the conviction, which is what they're out there looking to do, as opposed to the right thing. Um, and so, it, the, the, yeah, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the verdict, and the Supreme Court basically said, um, we're good with this. We yeah. think it's the way it should be. And I just think, you know... Um, I, I just think that more of this should happen. He had he had a very um, prominent civil rights attorney, John Burton, who worked with someone that I used to work for when I first you know learned the, the business, Maria Cavaluzzi. And so he had two great lawyers who just went to bat for him. I mean, if you think about it, their legal fees are nothing. Out of one hundred six thousand dollars, they might make forty grand between the two of them. But um, but you know what? They believed in the cause, and I'm so glad that they got this victory for him. Although he's deceased, and yeah. his mother's going to be collecting the the funds. I think yeah. I, as a taxpayer I want to sue the LAPD <laughs> for this. I mean, how much money? Doesn't it cost something on the order of like I don't know, $50,000 if not more a year to keep uh, somebody housed in there? Mm-hmm. So we potentially have spent $100,000 at least to keep a guy in jail who didn't deserve to be there uh, that I think that should not be not to mention back. he had a lot of um, alcohol related uh, illnesses that I think were worsened by the incarceration because you really don't get that you know the medical care that you need in custody and so who knows if that somehow led to his you know right. death when he died I mean he wasn't that old so anyway and I think what, what was it one hundred one hundred and six thousand yeah I mean I don't understand why a punitive damages might not have been yes. sought in this particular circumstance I understand right. his economical situation but mm-hmm. the fact that he was stripped of and he, he's passed away now if I'm right. correct right so the fact that he was stripped of the last two years of his life incarcerated you know, for nothing. For nothing, absolutely yeah, right. nothing. And I, I definitely agree that more of this should take place, um, and and that in fact this does send a message. However, mm-hmm. uh, this was a particular situation where if it wasn't for maybe that note and that that the consistency of that note and and the word start yeah. or what was it, was yeah. it start S T R A T or something. You know, being uh, phrased or, or written mm-hmm. spelled the same way, then this probably would never have came out. So, right. uh, and true. I commend the attorneys for the work that they've done. But uh, in reality, I think that uh, these things will consistently happen. And the police still know that if it's not for a specific circumstance like something like that, um, then they may continue to get away with this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Oh, and they had the, the actual guy. They had the actual robber right. because they got, got his prints. And the judge ordered the, the, the evidence to be turned over. I mean, this is what I deal with daily, which is, you know, uh, it's too burdensome. It's not relevant. It's like, you know what's burdensome is that my client... Has been arrested and, <laughs> and is paying a lot of money to defend himself, and he's 
you know, going to lose his whatever license to do whatever he's doing in his profession. I mean, that's burdensome. Right. Yeah. You know, right. get yeah. the shit, go to the copy machine and produce it. I mean, right. that's, I you know, right. anyway. Unfortunately, we have more stories of corruption, but I'm going to turn it over to Sarah. Ah. All right. Well, the L.A. County jail probe for brutality and corruption has now reached its top echelon. Um, and former undersheriff Paul Tanaka and Captain William Tom Carey have now been indicted by the feds um, on corruption charges. And Carey has also been indicted on perjury. Um, this... Uh, investigation by the FBI began um, about four years ago in 2011. The FBI started looking very closely at what was happening inside the L.A. County jails. Um, there was a lot of um, incidents of brutality by deputies on inmates, um, and then somehow it was just being shut down and not um, investigated by officials within the jail system. And so what the FBI did was they came across a man named Brown, who I think had a federal case to work, um, and decided to cooperate with the government and they gave him a phone. They gave him a cell phone by bribing another deputy to take the phone into the jail. And what Brown was essentially doing is documenting the brutality incidents and the responses of the deputies or lack thereof and sending information to the FBI. Well, when uh, the higher up deputies found out about the, the phone, they obviously confiscated the phone, but then a scheme began, and the scheme was that um, they, they met up with Tanaka, the undersheriff, the second highest person in the sheriff's department under former Sheriff Baca, and they started to, um, you know, Tanaka ordered them basically to move Brown around. Um, they were going to the records clerk at the jail and uh, giving Brown different names, fictitious names, and putting him in jail stations not in the main jails. Um, the FBI would come and look for him to testify at a grand jury, obviously about, you know, the, the LA County Jail. And uh, and they would say that he's been released, but he was there. Then he would inquire about, well, what happened to my FBI thing? And they would say, oh, uh, the FBI abandoned you. They're not interested in you as a witness anymore. So they were playing both both sides. Um, clearly corruption. And Tanaka has been known to have... Um, operated in that gray area. And by that, I mean he trained his deputies to really push the envelope in terms of um, violence. I mean, he, he was okay with these beatings, and he actually turned a blind eye towards things that he should have um, taken action on. And so, um, and that's what the government was interested in stopping. So last year, there were three trials of the subordinates. These were the deputies who were actually told to move the guy around and, and um, had information. One of them I'm very intimately familiar with. Um, he actually was the only one that got a mistrial but then the government retried him and got a conviction. And this is Deputy Sexton. He was—he um, actually helped the government. He met with the government probably, you know, I don't know, 20 times or so um, and was telling – but what happened was he was a rookie uh, – a deputy who wanted to sort of feel important, and he bolstered his testimony to the FBI, which in turn made made them come after him and indict him as well. So even the whistleblower mm -hmm. in this scenario um, got indicted and convicted. So the the defendants last year got between eighteen months to forty months in prison. Um, Tanaka and Kerry, I'm sure, are headed down towards a conviction in this case, and I'm sure that they're going to get way more than that time. The max is fifteen years. But these are the superiors. These are the guys that were giving the orders. So right. clearly they're going to have to yeah. be made. And, you know, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office is saying, look, we're trying to send a message that just because you're superior, you're, you don't get off the hook. Right. I mean, you're, you're going to have to be just as liable as your subordinates. So 
the question now is, is Baca next? And I say yes. I hope so. I (laughs) mean, it's... And you can't take this behavior, this action, to be a sign of guilt. But last year, he suddenly resigned, right. seemingly right. out of nowhere. Um, and to knock Iran. Right? That is hysterical. Right. I mean, he lost by a major landslide right. um, by uh, McDonald. Is that right. his, his name? But I think, the the if proven true, the worst statement, almost besides, hey, I operate in a gray area, is that I want the uh, Internal Affairs Division of the Sheriff's Department to re- be reduced by 44 people. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lot, seeing as how the entire department was 45 people. Right, because he doesn't want his, his deputies... Um excuse me, shit to be revealed. Right. Right. So, so, so if that is proven true, I don't see how a conviction would not be almost right. automatic. For Tanaka you're talking about. Yes, yes absolutely. Right. And I, I, how is it that Baca would absolutely right. have no idea Baca, that this was no, going on? Not only he did, he had an idea, but he convened meetings back in August of 2011 in parking lots in his office, in Tanaka's office, and he basically said, hey, everybody, you listen to whatever Tanaka tells you to do. I want an investigation done on the cell phone. And then that led them to go to the FBI agent's house and threaten her with an arrest. Um, and then he also said, and safeguard Brown. Okay, because, you know, he's a snitch and we want to protect him. No, 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 no. Safeguard means hide. Hide Brown. Hide Brown so that the FBI doesn't get to him. I mean, and that's exactly what happened. Crazy. It's like out of a movie. I think we definitely need to figure. I mean, because the consistency here between all the sto- the topics that we've talked about mm-hmm. is that there is no transparency. Mm-hmm. right? And so I think that one of the things that we need to be proactive in creating uh, and obviously social media helps with that on a number of different spectrums is to create some type of system that allows for transparency mm-hmm. in these departments because it's ridiculous that they can get away with these kind of things. For so long. Yeah. And he yeah. just had it so he was running a tight ship. I mean, he was letting them, he was um, encouraging them to to act borderline illegally um, or illegally actually and then he was keeping the doors closed on any information leaking out and the minute that it was discovered that there's somebody in there snitching um, for the government, then the corruption mm-hmm. began. Right. Yeah. So, anyway, so um, uh, I want to thank BJ Abron for joining us. Yes. Thank, you, thank so you so much. much. It was thank very you nice to have your perspective, me. of course. And this brings us to the close of this edition of Justice is Served. Please find us on YouTube and iTunes and click like and post your feedback and your comments. You can also tweet me at Azari Law. And me at Chelsea Galicia. All right. And thank you so much for joining us. We will see you next week right here on Justice is Served. Bye-bye. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.